So as we get ready to get started this morning, I don't normally pause to um, to to acknowledge a lot of the holidays, but I just want to say a happy Independence Day to everybody. And the reason why it's on my mind is those of you who know me best know I'm a big fan of irony and the unexpected, and I find a lot of humor in it. And I'm not smart enough to have planned out one of the most aggressively king-oriented psalms to be preached on Independence Day. So I just want to throw that out there, that that's what God did. God did that, you know, the day we celebrate not having a king. God wants us to read from the scripture about how we actually have a king. It's funny to me. Maybe nobody else is sharing in the humor of this, but I just thought it was hilarious when I was studying this week. So I was like, oh, it's 4th of July, and this is like one of the most king-oriented psalms that exist in all of the Bible. Okay, so here we go. For our friends who have shaken off the king, let's talk about our king this morning. So uh, in the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7, we see that the king's joy is in the Lord. So the king's joy is in the Lord. So, O Lord, in your strength, verse 1, the king will be glad. In your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. So in your strength and in your salvation is where it starts. The king will be glad. The king will rejoice. The delight of a godly and righteous leader is in the strength and salvation of the Lord. Now let's let that settle on the mind for a moment. The delight... Of a godly and righteous leader is in the strength and the salvation of the Lord. Now, notice I didn't say a logistically sound leader. An administratively savvy leader. Somebody who actually accomplishes good civic duties on behalf of people and you know, fulfills their purposes as a leader. You can go through history. And find wretchedly pagan, godless people who by textbook definition were functionally good leaders. They were able to fulfill the task of civic leadership. Almost all of the Caesars, except for the ones that were really crazy. The the Byzantine leaders early on anyway. Some of the pharaohs, we have examples of them actually having been good civic leaders. A number of, but not all of, the past American presidents, good civic leaders. But a number of the people that I just named were about as godless as they came. They didn't love the Lord. They didn't, they weren't glad in God's strength. They weren't rejoicing in the salvation that the Lord brought. And so, friend, there's a distinction between a functionally good leader And a godly leader. And the godly leader, godly and righteous leader, they find their delight in the strength and the salvation of the Lord. Why? Because there's an acknowledgement that they have no strength or salvation apart from the Lord. It's a matter of humility. The functionally good leader that's godless at the end of it will say, I was able to accomplish all of these things because I was a great leader. 
The godly and righteous leader at the end of it will say, I was able to accomplish all these things because my God is a great leader. And there's a deflection of glory from self to the Lord. I find my delight in God's strength, not my strength. I find my joy in God's salvation, not my own efforts to save myself. And we see in King David's life, because King David is the one who wrote this. Times of ebb and flow, where sometimes it was about David. And how great David was. And we have a lot of stories about how bad that goes when David gets like that. And then we have some remarkable stories about when David remembers that his delight is in God's strength and in God's salvation. And that we should be looking past the person of David and his works to the glory of the God who's doing these things through and for David. David's a perfect person to share this thought with us because he has on display in Scripture both the wrong way and the right way to do this. And notice what happens here in this, this joy that the king has because of God's strength and salvation. We see the blessings of God that come upon the king, starting in verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the requests of his lips. Again, as we saw very recently, this seems counter to how we normally think about the broken condition of the human person. But if our will is aligned with God's will, our heart is aligned with God's heart, our desire is aligned with God's desire, he happily gives to us those things we're longing for because they are the things that he is longing for. And so if the king is delighting in the strength and salvation of the Lord then certainly God will give the king his heart's desire because he is longing for God to be made glorious in this world. Also, as we continue to move, notice what it says. It says, for you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He has this outward picture of royalty. He asked life of you. And you gave it to him. And let's let's length of days forever and ever. Let's let's pause for a second. He asked life of you. Now, this could be just taken in the mere physical realm of I don't want my enemies to overcome me. I don't want to be die early and young in battle. I want to live a long and full prosperous life and have a godly influence on people for a long period of time. We, we could Contain it to that physical realm. But there's a sense in which, and David understands this, especially if you read through the other Psalms, you read through the stories of David throughout the Old Testament, where David understands that without God, he is dead, even though he lives. Even though he walks around and he breathes and he does stuff. Without the Lord. Inside, where it matters, and the depths of his soul, and the reality of his heart, and the fullness of his spiritual existence, he's dead. He wants life. And God gives it to him. In fact, Jesus gives a clarifying statement in the New Testament that not only do you receive life, but life abundant. That's the kind of life that we receive as Christians. A life that is 
full of meaning and purpose and value as we conform to the image of Christ and we reflect God's image as we ought to. And David understood this. Not only that, but I like this phrase here. There's a similar phrase in the New Testament. Whenever something's repeated in the scripture, uh, in translation or original language, doesn't matter. It's kind of important to make note of it. And so here he asked for length of days forever and ever. Forever, that's pretty long. And ever, that's even longer. If you can add time to that which was the longest already. You know, it's the whole, how much you love me, infinity times infinity, you know, whatever. He wants length of days that are unending. And this is how we know that David is actually having spiritual life in mind, not physical life. David is not asking that his current physical life lasts forever. That's not what he's asking for. He comprehends that that is not the case or the reality. What is he asking for? That that true life, that future life, whatever version that David understood in the Old Testament context of that. There's some sort of existence that he's longing for beyond this one that is without end. That's what I want from you. God, that's what I want you to give to me. This is a call for everlasting life found in covenant relationship with God. And it says, what did it just say in the text? What did it just say in the text? That God will give the king all of the desires of his heart. And what is one of the very first desires that he calls out for? I want everlasting covenantal life in you. Not unlike what his son requested when God said, I'll give you anything you want. He said, I want wisdom. I want good insight into the world in such a way that I can make wise choices and judgments on behalf of others. And God said, since you've asked for this, I'll give you not only that, but a whole bunch of other stuff that you didn't even ask for. David, in a similar way, says, you know what? There's so many things I can ask for right now, but I want life in God. Friends, that's a godly leader that is delighting in the strength and salvation of the Lord. And because of this, the king himself is made glorious because of God's salvation. His, the king's glory, is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you, God, place on him. You make him most blessed forever. And make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Friends, the language that's being used of the king here is transferable language to all of the saints in the New Testament. Because the language used of the king here is the same kind of language used of all of those who are in Christ. We are seated on thrones with Christ. We are co-heirs 
with Christ. We rule and we reign with Christ. We are clothed in righteousness with Christ. We are crowned with life and glory in Christ, etc., etc., etc. There is language of royalty given to the people of God. And friends, listen to what it says. His glory, the king's glory, the one who is ruling and reigning. Their glory, our glory is those who rule and reign with Christ. How is it found? It is found, it is made great through God's salvation. Friends, we were made glorious in the image of God. We fell into sin and that image was marred. We now do not reflect God rightly in the world in which we live in the way that we should. Our whole lives and being in existence are supposed to be a reflection of the full glory of God. I've used this in the class that I taught recently. I'll use it here in the sanctuary so everyone can hear it this morning. Our image bearing is like a full moon on a clear, dark night. Do you know what makes the full moon so bright and glorious on a clear, dark night? Do you know what the moon is doing? Do you know why the moon radiates light at all? What is it doing? It is reflecting the light of the sun at night. And when it is full and the night is dark and clear, it reflects the greatest amount of the glory of the light of the sun in the middle of the darkest moments. That's what we are intended to do. We are to reflect the full glory of God. That's what we were meant to do. We are the moon to the sun of God's glory. And what did sin do to us? It made us a new moon. You just don't see it anymore. There's hints of it. But it's just not there. What did Christ do when he came and he died and he was raised again and he brought us to life through faith and repentance in the gospel? He made the moon full again that we might reflect the glory of God. Our glory comes from his salvation. That's what it does. And friends, the great problem of humanity is that we try to reflect a glory that is not our own. We try to claim Glory for ourselves and in ourselves and of ourselves apart from the salvation of the Lord. And here the acknowledgement is the king is made glorious because of God's salvation. Listen, listen to the description that's given splendor and majesty. God places on the king. Now, we could go way past David and we could go straight to Jesus. Splendor and majesty have been placed upon the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his incarnation. And at the risk of almost sounding blasphemous, because it does almost sound blasphemous, but it is a clear and right and true teaching throughout all of Scripture. We are partakers of his glory. It almost feels weird saying that out loud, but it's actually just what the Bible says. And so the splendor and majesty that is placed upon the king is placed also upon us. And we're blessed forever because of it. And we find joyful gladness in God's presence as opposed to what? You make him joyful with gladness in your presence, friends. There are two options in Scripture and two options 
only for human beings that come into the presence of the living God. They either fall into a great terror and dread for fear of God's wrath. Or usually after they fall into great terror and dread and God tells them it's okay to be there. They respond with joyful gladness to be in the presence of the Lord. That's it. That's the two options. You never have any human being stroll into the presence of God and be like, yo, what's up, dude? You're my homeboy, co-pilot and all the weird stuff that's on bumper stickers and T-shirts today. Nobody comes neutrally into the presence of God in the scripture. They either come into the presence of God overwhelmed with terror or they come into the presence of God acknowledging the joyful gladness of his salvation. That's the two options you get. And so what is the other option here? It says God does this through his salvation. Why can the king come with joyful gladness into the presence of the Lord? Because God has allowed it. And David takes full advantage of it. And because of all of these things, because all of these things are true, notice how this starts to transition. The king trusts in the Lord. We don't want to get lost in the weeds here. But notice that the king's trust of the Lord came after all that other stuff. It didn't start with the king trusted in the Lord and then the Lord did all these great things for the king. No, the Lord did all these great. He saved him. He delivered him. He put glory on him. He made him joyful and glad and rejoicing and, and splendid and majestic. And oh, and, and the king trusted him. Just want to throw that out there. You can chew on that later and take me to lunch. We can talk about it. So. The king trusts in the Lord. And what is the chief drive as to why the king trusts the Lord? Through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaking. That word for loving kindness. It's the merciful love of God. The God of mercy. The God who shows his love to us through his sacrificial mercy. It's the atoning, sacrificial, merciful love of God. Through God's sacrifice on my behalf, I will not be shaken. And the trust that I have in the Lord is in the work that he has done for me, not the work that I do for him. This is the joy of the king. And because the king has this kind of joy in the salvation and strength of God, the king's victory is also found in the Lord. Verses 8 through 12. Your hand, whose hand, the king's hand, no, God's hand, your hand will find out all your enemies. Here goes that right hand again, your right hand metaphor in the Old Testament that we find for Jesus will find out those who hate you. You will make them your enemies, those who hate you as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. The Lord overcomes the king's enemies. I have found in all of these many years now that I have done pastoral ministries. And I've sat across 
tables from people struggling with things. There are only a handful of categories of suffering that people deal with. And these categories of suffering are all dealt with in very different ways. There's the suffering that comes when we have done that which is wrong and we're dealing with the consequences of our wayward actions. There's a certain way that you need to deal with that kind of suffering usually starts with repentance. There's suffering that comes into people's lives at the poor choices of others that they themselves didn't have anything to do with, but they're having to deal with the consequences of the choices that others have made. Usually the first step in that is forgiveness. Then there's the suffering that comes just from the brokenness of the world. Things that aren't really anyone's fault. We just live in a world that is constantly caving in on itself. I think and come to mind the crashing of the condominium that you've heard about here recently. Maybe somebody's fault, may not be somebody's fault, but friends, these sort of things happen all the time. And there's people that are going to have to pick up the pieces, so to speak, of their lives from the devastation that something like that caused, but it may or may not really be anybody's fault. Usually the first step in that is the acceptance of sovereignty. That God has control over his world and things happen in ways that we don't always expect. But the fourth kind of suffering and actually the kind of suffering that I see people dealing with the most, it is actually the most prominent kind of suffering that people deal with. Most common kind of suffering that people deal with is people are fighting battles that have already been won for them by Christ. So what do you mean by that? You all know what I mean by that. Every one of you has done it at least once this week. You're worried about this thing. And you're anxious about this thing. And I'm just, but what about this? And what about that? And what? And then you, hey, what do you think? What do you think? I think you just need to get over it. Say, so is that what you say in counseling? Sometimes. Some of you have actually sat in an office where I look at you and I go, like Bob Newhart, stop it. If you've not seen the Bob Newhart counseling video, please go to YouTube today and watch it. It's hilarious. I can fix this problem in two words. Stop it. Jesus has won a profound victory in our lives. He has given us freedom. He has given us blessing. He has given us grace. He has given us reasons not to worry and be anxious. He has promised us joy in this life. And most of us spend an inordinate amount of time struggling and wrestling and wrangling through things that are of almost no consequence at all. Because we want to have sovereign control over every detail of our lives rather than just yielding to the fact that Christ is king and he has given us great victory. And we beat ourselves near to death in our Christian walk Being anxious over nothing. Nothing. You would marvel at the amount of times I have to sit across from another Christian and say, you know what? You're beating yourself up over something that's actually not there. You're carrying around with you a guilt of burden over something that Jesus has taken away long ago. And what does it say here? What does it say here? Look at this. 
your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. Who is it that hates the Lord? Friends, I'm going to move from preaching to meddling and we're all going to say ouch instead of amen. John tells us in the New Testament that it is the spirit of Antichrist that resides in the world today that essentially hates all the things of God. Anything in anyone's life that does not reflect a loving trust of the glory of King Jesus hates God. Say, Philip, you just threw my whole week under the bus. Mine too. Your right hand will find out all those who hate you. Say, Philip, there's stuff in my life that I know is not pleasing to the Lord. God's right hand will find that out. And he will overthrow all of his enemies. Foreign, Independence Day, or domestic. And if I'm going to be honest, most of the enemies that the Lord has that are in my life, they start in the domestic. They're not on the outside coming in. They're on the inside coming out. I have to put to death through the power of the Spirit the deeds of my flesh. And that's hard. It's super easy to say. It's really hard to live in. But that's part of the Christian walk. That's part of the victory that we have in the royal family. Is that he finds out all his enemies and he destroys them. Swallows them up. Burns them away. Nails them to a cross. Cancels the certificate of debt. That's what he does. He puts us, as it says in the New Testament, in a consuming fire. The dross comes up. He wipes that stuff off and purified metal comes out. Friends, the the, the fiery judgment language isn't just reserved for the unbeliever. There is a crucible that the believer goes through. There's a reckoning that we experience. Where God himself puts to death the old man and the new man emerges with life that reflects the image of God. And it's a full victory. I want you to see this. This victory that we get is a full victory. Notice what it says. In verse 10, their offspring, the offspring of the enemy, you will destroy from the earth now, interestingly, that word for offspring there translated their offspring in NSB is is the language of fruit. Fruit, that which is produced by our enemies, the fruit, their fruit, you will destroy from the earth, their descendants, more literal word seed from among the sons of men. Friends, those things that produce waywardness. And rebellion, God will make rid of. He'll he'll get rid of it. He'll push it away. He'll destroy it. It will not continue to abide. Friends, that is true of God's actual real enemies. It is also true of the spiritual enemies that we face inside of ourselves. 
God will not allow us to continue to give birth to that which is displeasing to him. He won't. He has made a promise that we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. That the old things will pass away and that all things will be made new. And this victory one day will be ultimate and final in the final redemption of all things at the resurrection at the last day. But until then, he is doing a great work in us. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have friends in Christ Jesus. Full victory. And here's the beautiful thing. As hard and as impossible as it sounds, we can actually live in that full victory right now. Says, I mean, you can be sinless. Absolutely not. But I can live my life acknowledging who I am in Christ rather than who I was in Adam. Adam is not my father any longer. I am now a child Of the most high God. And most of the struggles that I have in my life. Is that I forget that truth. And I live my life as if I am still a child of Adam. Rather than an adopted newborn son of the most high God. Co-heir and brother of Christ Jesus. Friends that truth does not change. What I do with that truth might change. But that truth itself is constant. My position in the Lord is sure and permanent and everlasting. And all I have to do is remind myself of that every moment of every day. So why would you remind yourself of that every moment of every day? Because the moment that I don't remind myself of that, my life is going to go off the rails. Kind of like King David on his rooftop with Bathsheba. It just takes a moment of living for self rather than living for the salvation that we find in the Lord. This full victory that we have. And so what should our response to all this be? What should it be? Verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. This is a perfect picture of Hebrew poetry book ended on the front end and the back end by essentially the same thing. Notice, if you will. Lord, in your strength, the king will be glad. Lord, in your salvation, your victory, your power, we will greatly rejoice. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing pray, sing and praise your power. That's classic Hebrew poetry at its best. Book ending the things that flow in the middle with the same thought and the same response. What should our response be? Our response should be what our response should always be when we are reminded of the glory of God and his salvation that we find in Christ and the full victory that he has given to us and the redemption and the majesty and the glory that he not only has for himself, but that he also places on us as a gracious gift of salvation that he has given us. We do not deserve it. We cannot earn it. Yet he has made us to gloriously reflect the image of 
Christ as we ought to in this world and allows us to participate in his feast table, sit on his throne and rule in his heaven with him when before we were enemies of his in the city of man. And now we make known his excellencies in the city of God. What should we do? We should worship God. That's what we should do. The great motivator of worship is not a cool beat and a fun rhythm and a good circumstance and a good environment and a good sound system and good acoustics and all kinds of other sorts of things. Those things are nice. Those things are fine. Those things are great. It's great if you have those things. But worship is driven by an understanding of Of God's strength and salvation applied to our lives in Christ Jesus. And the response that I have in this sanctuary when I'm singing and when I'm praying and when I'm listening to God's word. And the response that I have when I'm standing in line at the store or I'm sitting out in traffic or I'm having a meeting with a teacher at school or I'm doing something with a co-worker or I'm having a bad day at my house or whatever may or may not be going on in life. Our response should be one of constant reminder toward worship. And it doesn't matter if I'm sitting freely here in the sanctuary without fear of judgment or oppression. Or if I'm suffering through the greatest of anxiety in a hospital room or anything in between those two realities. The call for the Christian person who is now participating and sharing in the royalty of Jesus Christ himself as a gift of grace should be one of what does he say? Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And that sometimes means that you worship God for the good provision that he's made. And sometimes that means that you worship God for the frowning providence of the thing that he has taken away. It says it very, very explicitly in the scripture text. The Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be occasionally praised when I like that good thing he gave me. That's not what it says. The message doesn't even say that. The Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Worship of God in our lives, in our words and in our singing. Is not conditioned on how well things are going in life. Because here's the deal, friends. If you are in Christ Jesus. Remember all the stuff that we saw at the beginning of this. If you are in Christ Jesus, it is because God in his sovereign loving kindness has brought you into his kingdom savingly. You didn't earn it. Certainly do not deserve it. You should not be there. Whenever you look around and you remember that you are currently seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, the very next thought should be, I'm not supposed to be here. 
And as long as your very next thought is, I'm not supposed to be here, you should have no problem following it up with, praise be to God that I am here. It was going around this week and I was reminded, I'll close with this, of a a quote from John Owen. And he was talking about going to heaven. And he said, when I enter into glory one day, I'll be surprised by three things. First, I will be surprised by the number of people that I see there that I did not expect. Let's just face it. There's some people that we just don't think are going to be there and we're going to be surprised. I'll be surprised, second, by the number of people I thought should be there who aren't. The third and most of all, I'll be surprised that I am there for any reason at all. And friends, when we remember that, when we remember that the glory and royalty that has been placed on us has been placed on us as a gracious gift because of the death and, re- death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it should drive our whole life and being toward worship. What does that word mean? It means the acknowledgement of the worth and worthiness of someone else. The very life I have is because God is worthy. Friends, let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the glory and the royalty that has been placed upon us because of Jesus Christ. He has given us an abundance of blessings that cannot be counted. If we were to contemplate your goodness to us through your son and by the abiding presence of your spirit, we would do better to try and count all of the sand upon the seashore. Father, your goodness to us is overwhelming. And more overwhelming still is that we do not deserve any of it. Rebels that we were, rebels that we are. Shaking our fist in your face while you give us the very breath that we use to curse your name. And then causing our hardened stony hearts to be replaced by hearts of flesh that we now cry out to you, our God and our King. Father, thank you for your grace. And Father, when we call to mind these abundant blessings the victory that you give us, the crown of glory and life, the robes of righteousness, the feast that we share with you at your table, the throne that you seat us on with Christ Jesus, the way that you've caused us to be the moon to the reflection of the glory of the sun, your very presence flowing from our existence as we bear your image rightly in Jesus Christ. May we be driven to lives marked by Worship.
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.